It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Best-selling author Tara Westover says she can't tell the story of her unique education without including the story of her family. Raised in the mountains of Idaho, her survivalist parents wouldn't allow her to go to school. Instead, she worked in her dad's junkyard. It's a distinctive story. Still, Westover's hope is that readers can relate. I kind of wrote the book in such a way that people, I hoped, could have some little piece of experiences I had. I wanted that to go through a filter of their own lives that would distort it in a way. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Tara Westover first learned in college about major world events like the Holocaust and the Civil Rights Movement. Prior to college, she lacked a formal education, but began to teach herself. Her parents isolated her family from mainstream society, so there was no one to ensure she and her siblings went to school. She says she thought she'd be married, have children, and work as a midwife, like her mother, by her early 20s. But when her brother introduced her to opera and choir music, she began to dream of more. It was clear even to my seven-year-old ears, this isn't, nobody knows how to sing like an opera singer from birth. You have to go somewhere and someone teaches you how to do this and it's rigorous. It was the first time I think it occurred to me that there were things on the mountain, like there might be a reason to leave the mountain. There were other things that were worth going and finding. Westover went on to attend Harvard and Cambridge. Her book, Educated, was named Book of the Year by the American Booksellers Association. Westover speaks with Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief at The Atlantic. Here's Goldberg. I, I want to jump in, but I want to ask, I do want to ask a question first. How many people have read this book? Right. So we don't really have a spoiler alert problem, do we? <laughs> one, of the, one of the miracles of this book, and it's my favorite book of the last year, uh, one of the miracles... I'm, I'm, That's nice. No, no, it's true. I told you that. It's true. Um, you didn't say that in your last I event. say that to every author I interview here, by the way. Uh, it's my favorite book, and, and there is this, one of the miracles of this book is that uh, you, you know, it, it reads as many different kind of books as one. In, in part, there's a, there's a suspense, a thriller, a horror story even, and, and you're reading it, and you're thinking, God, I hope she lives, and you obviously know that she lives because she wrote the book, um, and, uh, and yet the, it's so propulsive and so tension-making that um, it's, one of the, it's one of your gifts as a, as a writer. Um, so since everybody here, almost everybody here, has, has read this book, I don't think we're going to have to spend a lot of time talking about the, the, the bare-bones story, um, but you can refer to it, obviously, whenever, whenever you need to. My, my, my question for you, my opening question for you is, is this. Um, it's an extraordinarily specific story, obviously. Not a lot of people grew up the way you grew up. That might be the understatement of the day. Um, the, but there's something sufficiently universal about this, that people are drawn to it. Um, by noting that, uh, noting that it's a New York Times bestseller notes only part of the story. This book has sold more than two million copies in hardcover so far in, in the United States alone. I don't know uh, if that's hardcover. I think that's all of them. Okay, it's just, just go, go, with, go with my story. Go with it. Just go with it. Uh, it's an extraordinarily says? popular book. <laughs> popular books often are rooted in something specific but have a universal message. What, are, what do you think your readers are getting from this book? What are they taking out of this? Oh, um... It's a nice, soft question to start. Um, <laughs> you can handle it. 
what are they getting out of it? Um, I think that you're you're absolutely right. It's a principle of storytelling that the universal is always best explored in the specific, and we're told that. But I think when you're writing it, it never feels that way. Uh, I remember when I was writing Educated, I, I felt like this book is going to do so great with like, little girls who were raised in Idaho and never went to school and worked in their dad's junkyard. They are going to love this. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like all 10 of them. Um, and, and then I don't, I don't know how anyone else could uh, find anything in this. But um, I don't know. I mean, I intentionally wrote it so that I wouldn't know the answer to that question because I wanted it to be an experience. So there's, you have a lot of choices when you're writing about your own life. You can, you can tell a few stories, kind of anecdotes, and then you can slip into a different voice and say, this is what this means. And you can give a lot of opinions. And that's not a bad way to go. I didn't go that way. I wrote it to be an experience in the sense that I wanted... I wanted to stay in specific moments, and I didn't want to step outside and say this is what it means. And the thing is about letting people have an experience instead of something more like an essay is that two people can have the same experience and come to really different conclusions about it. And so I kind of wrote the book in such a way that people, I hoped, could have some little piece of experiences I had. And I wanted them to... I wanted that to go through a filter of their own lives that would distort it in a way. So I didn't put any pictures of my family in, and part of that was to preserve their privacy. But the other part of it was, if somebody reads the book and sees their father instead of my father, or their mother instead of my mother, and disregards the bits of my story that don't quite fit, I'm okay with that distortion. It's kind of what I was going for. And it's one of the weird things about the book is I have people come up to me and get all kinds of things from it. I have people come up to me and say, I'm, I'm just really happy for you because I'm so sure that reconciliation with your parents is right around the corner. And I have people come up to me and say, I'm so glad that you're never going back there again and that that's sorted. And, and I'm both, I just smile and nod and uh, I know it has everything to do with them and like nothing to do with me. You know, and that's what a story should do, I think. So tell us about writing what is the most popular memoir of, of the year. You, everybody Michelle. in this room, well, um, there's, there's that little Michelle Obama, <laughs> but apart Bummer. from that. Um, that's also a big seller, I understand. Um, she's okay, I'm not worried about her. Yeah, you know, yeah. Not, 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 worried, not worried about I'm her. I'm not worried about her. Uh, but, but one day, you're known in your small academic community among your friends. The next day, you're in a room like this, and most people here know details of your life. You'll never know the details of their lives, of our lives. What, what is it like to just put that out there into the world? And I guess the, the, the deeper question is, did you ever expect so many people to, to be so fascinated by your own life? No. Um, I mean, it's kind of a, it's like a, I think it's something your unconscious can't really get come to terms with. As far as I know, I wrote this book in my dingy little room. <laughs> At some point, I emailed it to somebody. And I'm not sure that on a conscious level, I really understand, like, how did it come to be that people have read it? Like, as far as I'm, it's on my laptop, as far as I know. And then people come up to me, and they tell me something from the book. And I, I have this kind of instinctual response, like, how do you know? <laughs> like, who told you that? And then I remember. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a... It's discomforting, right? It's a book. It's weird. And, I mean, there's a physical object that's there, but I don't... I don't know. The format that I'm used to it in is, is this laptop I wrote it on that had a cracked screen that was permanently blue. <laughs> that is the format that I think of it in. And the book is, is, is weird. 
So, uh, before we talk about your life since the book came out, talk, talk about the moment. I'd, I'd love to understand the moment when you realized that you had something to say and you're sitting alone in that dingy room and you decide that your life story is worth telling. What was the, bring us up to that moment when you said, you know what, I'm gonna just write this whole damn thing and whatever happens, happens. I had been told by several of my professors that I had this kind of unusual path through education and that I should write about education. And I thought about that and thought, yeah, I think I'll do that because I've been to these institutions, Harvard, Yale, and I noticed, not Yale, uh, Harvard and Cambridge, I just made up another school I never yeah. went to. Um, yeah. and I, I, By the way, I, Yale would be happy to claim you, so <laughs> we could just go, yeah. Um, but I, I just had never met anyone like me at these places, and I don't even mean like me in the sense of raised by survivalists. I meant just from a small town. Uh, and I just felt like, yeah, there's an experience of a lot of people that's just not being represented here. So I thought, yeah, I'll write it. The education side, I'll write. But the family side, I thought, I'm not going anywhere near that. And I convinced myself that it was possible to write just about my education and just leave the family out of it. I don't really know what I thought that book would be like. Um, it would be a drier book about education in rural America? What would yeah, it so be? Yes, you're like, I never went to school, but we're not going to talk about why. Right. <laughs> it, it would just, it would be odd. Um, and then I started trying to write it, and I, uh, there just wasn't a way. The, the things had to be explained. And I think eventually, as I started getting a little more comfortable with the idea of writing about my upbringing and my family and that whole process of... Um, self-creation, self-defending, all of that, I, I started realizing the story of my family and the story of my education is really the same story. And it's not really possible to separate them because the way that I, the, the process of my education and all the things that that gave to me, it did all the things that we expect our education, our education to do. It made me more employable. I had a degree from, a nice, from nice universities. I could apply for jobs I wouldn't have been able to get before. So it had that effect. But it had a, a whole other effect on the way that I lived my life, on the choices that I made, what I thought a good life consisted of. And that would have huge ramifications for the relationships I had. But when you were growing family. up, what did you think a good life consisted of? I, didn't, I don't know if I would have thought of it in those terms. I just thought you, there was a path that was carved out for you, and you, you did that path. I mean, there was, I remember I, I wrote a journal entry when I was 12 that I was asked to imagine for church. I was asked to imagine what my life would be like in, I think, five years, so 17. And I was like, well, I'll be married. I'll have a kid. <laughs> uh, I really just, this was, this was life. I was going to homeschool them. I was going to become a midwife like my mother. I, I, had it all, I had it all planned out. It wasn't necessarily what I wanted. It was just what, what there was. Right. When did you first dream of something other than that? Um, I think for me it was, it was music, and I, I can't really, exp it's weird to tell people, you know, my brother introduced me to opera and choir music when I was probably seven or eight, and it was the first time that I had heard music that was just so um, inorganic in the sense that it was, it was clear even to my seven-year-old ears. This isn't, nobody knows how to sing like an opera singer from birth. You have to go somewhere and someone teaches you how to do this and it's rigorous and 
it was the first time I think it occurred to me that there were things on the mountain, like there might be a reason to leave the mountain. There were other things that were worth going and finding because I was just really gripped by the sound of that music. And so I decided that I was going to go to college so that I could study music. That's, that's really what motivated me. And so I bought a study guide and I taught myself algebra, which didn't, didn't go that well, but it went okay. And um, it's a funny thing to tell people, but I mean it really sincerely, I don't think it's a stretch to say I taught myself algebra because I like to sing. Like That is the reason. Um, and I don't know if there's a lesson or a moral to draw from it except for maybe this, that I think we should probably be a little bit cautious or reflective before we kill any passion that appears in a child. Because I think passion, really what it is, is just a love of hard work. And it's pretty rare. And it's hard to create. And in my own case, I loved music, so I, learned my, I, I, taught, I taught myself algebra, I went to BYU. At BYU, I discovered philosophy, I became kind of obsessed with that. That took me to Cambridge. At Cambridge, I discovered writing, I liked that, so I wrote a book. So it, I think you don't necessarily know where a love of something will, will take you, but you know that if you don't have any love for, for things, like, you'll go nowhere. So I think it might be a, a defense for, for giving, giving students, giving kids, just allowing them their passions, let them have it. Without the external intervention of your brother on music, do you think you would not be who you are today? It's a broader question, obviously, about how to find kids in isolation and give them, show them some possibilities. I'm terrible with counterfactuals, but I, I think it's unlikely that without some interventions, there has to be a path, you know? I mean, you can't climb out without a ladder. There has to be a way to do that. And I think it's, it's hard because for some kids it's going to be money and for some kids it's going to be other kinds of emotional support. I benefited tremendously from support from all different kinds of quarters and, and quarters that would be kind of surprising I think to people. So when I was at BYU I had a, a bishop who's kind of the Mormon equivalent of a pastor over the congregation. And he had ideas about gender that I don't agree with at all. And I expect a lot of people in this room wouldn't agree with. He thought women should be essentially stay-at-home mothers. He didn't think they should work. And yet this man, when I was going to drop out of school because I needed a root canal and I didn't have the money for it, um, just was incredibly um, devoted to, the, to this idea that I was, just, I was not going to leave school over this root canal. And so he... He spent several weeks trying to convince me to take money from the church, which I wasn't, I wasn't willing to do. And then he tried to convince me to take money from the government, which I wouldn't do because my dad had told me that was evil. And so no, no Pell Grants. And then he was just at the end of his rope, so he opened his drawer, pulled out his personal checkbook, and uh, wrote me a check for $1,400, which um, I've never done that to someone I don't know that well. So I think sometimes help came from unusual places, I guess, and it's, uh, it's an unfortunate tendency, I think, to see people almost entirely through this prism of ideology and think that if we know one thing about a person that we know everything about them. So we know that this man has a belief that women should be at home, and we don't realize that that doesn't mean he is not capable of incredible acts of compassion and seeing, I felt like he saw me as a person and saw that I wanted to stay in school. I don't feel like he saw me as a category, and it can be hard for me when people want to see him as a category. I, w I want to loop around back to this broad subject, and we've been talking about rural education and all kinds of subjects, but uh, I want to stay on, on your life as a writer for a minute, and I think, I know I'm curious about this. Um, that moment, 
the moment you become a real writer is the moment when you realize that everything is fodder for the writing. And, and, and okay. have you, well, your family. I mean, what's the, the, you know, what's the great, it's an old curse. You know, may you, be, may you have a writer in the family because, uh, you know, you, you might find yourself exposed in ways that you don't want in the, in the interest of truth. Um, when did you get comfortable with the idea of writing about your family, warts and all, or have you gotten comfortable yet with writing about your family? I'll let you know if that ever <laughs> happens. Um, I, I would say I'm comfortable with it because I have control over it, and you can hide behind language quite a bit, I think. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else, but I'm comfortable with it in as far as I can see a point to what I'm doing. And so that was my ultimate goal with everything that I wrote about my family. There were, there were loads of things that I remember making lists and thinking, well, this is a very dramatic scene. People will like it because it's dramatic. But I couldn't, I couldn't think of what the point of it was and I couldn't think of why it mattered, and so I, I put it aside. And I think that there's things that, yeah, I feel conflicted about them, and they're people that I, I care about, and I don't know how they're gonna feel about what I'm writing, and I think you have to take responsibility for that in a way. I don't think that there's a perfectly clean answer to that. In telling your own story, you're gonna have to tell other people's stories, and there's not a way around it, and you can't pretend like it's not complicated. It is complicated. And the only place I could get to that allowed me to write it is to say, I felt like there was a larger point to what I was doing. And then I tried to be as gentle as I possibly could and be as um, empathetic as I possibly could. And if, if, if there was something that I knew would just be a sexy scene for the book or something, I, I just didn't put it in. If it didn't need to be there, I didn't put it in. Can you tell us about your relations with your family now? They're pretty much the way they were, the way they were at the end of the book. Um, um, some of my aunts and uncles and cousins responded a lot more supportively to the book than I expected, and so I've grown closer to some of them. Um, some of my siblings have struggled with the book, but mostly, mostly the way that you would expect if you, if you read it. I don't think it's too shocking from, yeah, from that. Um, could you talk a little bit about the survivalist impulse. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about preppers in America. We talk about this fracturing of America and secessionism and, and all sorts of things. Uh, could you talk about the mentality that motivates people toward a survivalist lifestyle? Um, probably, if I think about it, it's a feeling of never quite feeling secure, I think. I think that's certainly part of it. I think that there are pockets in American history that, I mean, for one thing, it's a massive country, and so there are a lot of people that live in a kind of relative isolation, and I think it's very easy for people to feel, people where I'm from at least, to feel like even the state government in Boise just doesn't understand or represent them at all because there's no overlap. And as soon as the thing that is making all the rules in your life that has a lot of control over you is completely foreign to you and doesn't feel like you at all. I, I don't think it's so surprising that in rural areas people have a lot of skepticism of the government because if you think about what is your experience of the federal government or the state government if you live in Boston? The government provides roads, the schools are pretty good, you have healthcare. Your experience of the government is gonna be relatively positive. You, know, you don't like paying taxes, but you get things back for that. If you grew up where I grew up, the roads are plowed, whenever the hell they want to, 
they have a lot of holes in them, the schools are struggling, it's hard for schools in rural areas to get teachers, those kids tend not to go to universities, there's a real problem with rural education. The, the main way that you're going to interact with the government is going to be um, requirements on agriculture that don't make any sense, or speeding tickets. I mean, I never had a positive interaction with the government till I got a Pell Grant when I was 20. It was the first time that I thought, oh, it does useful things sometimes. Like, <laughs> this is actually good. Um, so was that a big decision for you, given how your father had raised you to, oh, to was, take that I Pell Grant? I was a wreck. <laughs> Why were you, what, what was the manifestation of being a wreck? My that? dad had told me that the, if you took money from the government, one thing, God would be angry with you, which I was trying to avoid, generally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's making an effort. Um, but also that it was a way that the government would manipulate you, that it would get you, um, it would make you dependent on that money, and then you would, you would never gain your independence back. And my experience of it was actually completely different. It was the first summer that I didn't have to go home and work for my dad, which I had sworn I would never do again, but I always had to do because I needed the money. And that was the first time I was able to keep my promise to myself because I... I was, uh, I, I was not financially desperate. But also, I think the biggest benefit that you get when you have any money at all is that you suddenly are able to think about things besides money. And if you don't have money, uh, your whole brain is just occupied with getting it and getting enough to get through the next day or the next week. And I was a terrible student in the sense that I don't think I learned very much until I was financially somewhat secure, which didn't take a lot of money. <laughs> it was just like a little bit of money. But the difference it made to me uh, was, was pretty enormous. Right. Talk a little bit about your, your thinking today uh, about the country and about the rural-urban divide. We've talked about this a little bit, and I know this is a preoccupation of, of yours. You've, you've suggested that there's a lack of sympathy or maybe a, a too much condescension or contempt one side to another. Um, you obviously live in a completely different world now than you lived then, but you have an understanding, I think, that's fairly unique of the world from which you came. Can you talk about that a little bit, your understanding? Yeah, I mean, I live in New York now, and I go back to Idaho a couple times a year, and my family are mostly there. And the biggest thing that I notice when I'm in New York and I hear people talking about uh, rural people or Trump supporters or whatever category you're using, my response is always just like, who the hell are you? <laughs> Who are these people? Like, I don't know these people. I've never met these people that you're describing. But I feel the same way when I'm in Idaho and I hear them describing New Yorkers. I just have the same exact response. <laughs> like, who are you talking about? Um, and I think, to me, that's the biggest problem that we have. There's, a, there's a, a word for it that I particularly like, or a phrase, the breaking of charity. And it came out of the Salem witch trials. And it, to break charity with someone, it, it, it it refers to that moment where two members of the same tribe um, disfellowship one another, and they decide that they belong in different tribes. And that, to me, is the biggest political, social problem that we have. More than any particular issue, uh, any of these super contentious abortion, gun rights, whatever it is that we think, or any single politician, I think all of that is, is just... Um, it's just the side effect of that fundamental fact that people no longer feel like people on the other side are part of the same tribe. And the thing is, what we know about persuasion is um, you can't actually persuade anybody by yelling at them. And if the only thing that you know about a person is that they voted for someone you don't like, 
your ability to persuade them not to do that is entirely compromised. And the only way that anybody has ever been persuaded of anything is by someone who cared about them, understood them, understood their point of view, and was able to incorporate all of that into an argument that changed their mind. It's the only way anybody's ever changed their mind about anything. And I know because I've had to change my mind about pretty much everything. <laughs> and uh, and that's, how, that's how it was done for me. I remember my first night, one of my first nights in Cambridge, I, I went out to dinner and I, it was 2008 and everyone's talking about the Prop 8 campaign in California and I said a, a bunch of things. If I said in this room, I'd probably get stoned, but I believed them. I'd grown up with these uh, very homophobic ideas and they were my ideas and I was saying them and this guy stayed up all night arguing with me about it. And the way that he did it was just incredible where he essentially kind of excised them from me and would say things to me like, you seem like a good person. Like, how does this fit in? Like, is this really, like, where does this come from? Because here's you, and then here's these ideas, and I don't really see where they fit in. And it, you know, it kind of, for one thing, I didn't have to be as defensive. And, um, and you know, by the end of the night, I went home and I thought it over, and I thought, yeah, I don't know if I ever want to say those things again. But, but aren't you, in one sense, an advertisement against this kind of exposure? If you're a socially conservative person in Idaho or wherever, um, and you look at your transformation, your, your time at Harvard and Cambridge, your many years at Yale, um, the, um, oh, how we long for those days, right? Um, they, they would look at you and what you've become and say, well, this kind of education is going to take my children and make them different from me, and I don't want that. So how do you, how do you, how do you suggest the, the value of, of, of cosmopolitan education, enlightened education, whatever you want to call it, to people who are scared of the possibilities of what the downstream effects might be? I think you have to take the condescension out of it, is the thing. I think that we have allowed education to become an identity, almost. We've allowed it to be something that some people get a lot of access to, and that a certain kind of person gets, and a certain kind of person doesn't get, and we have, um, I think we do have a situation where in a lot of cases we have allowed our education to putrefy into arrogance, and um, education should change you, it should absolutely change you, and it's a, it's a huge risk, and I think most parents, if, even if they knew it might uh, cause some change to their kid, but it's also going to open up a world for them would choose education, even, even rural people, but I think when you add that contempt, contempt into it, um, that's when it becomes a, a, a different animal. And I don't necessarily blame them for feeling like they don't want their kids to go off and become contemptuous of them. So I think part of that has to do with the way that we conceive of education, which I think in some ways is just wrong-headed. I, I don't think education is so much a state of certainty as it is a process of inquiry. And I think an educated person is, I don't think it's someone who can recite an army of facts and knows a lot of things. I think it's probably someone who has some flexibility of mind, who's willing to examine their own prejudice, who has acquired uh, a depth of understanding that allows them to see the world from another point of view. And I know it's a radical thing to say, but I kind of, I kind of suspect that education maybe is less about knowing more than someone and, and maybe more about knowing someone, like really knowing them, who is not like you. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. 
Catch today's featured speaker, Tara Westover, in another conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival. In the discussion, Revising the Narrative on Rural America, Westover talks with journalists James Fallows and Sarah Schmarsh about what urban Americans get wrong about rural people and places. Westover says stereotypes are reinforced by the media. The tropes of journalism need to change, but so few of our filmmakers and our writers and our journalists come from these places. Find a video of the conversation on our website, aspenideas.org. Passes for the 2020 Aspen Ideas Festival go on sale this week. Experience the festival live in Aspen, Colorado next summer. Get your pass starting Wednesday, November 13th on aspenideas.org. Register online at aspenideas.org. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Jeffrey Goldberg. In the process of your education, what was the most surprising thing you learned uh, about the world late? I did learning about the Holocaust was a bit of a shake. That was unpleasant. How old were you? Yeah, how, remind us how uh, old you were. I was uh, 17. Um, it was one of my first classes. And that was, like, yeah, Thursday morning. <laughs> Wednesday night, I lived in a world where there was no Holocaust. And then Thursday afternoon, uh, there had been. And that was a shift. Uh, but I think... Strange as it is to say, I think the civil rights movement was maybe, uh, I didn't know, I, I knew about slavery, but I learned this very weird uh, version of it. What was the weird version? <laughs> there was a history book that my dad had on the, mount, on the mantle that I'd read that basically said slavery was this really difficult, onerous, terrible institution for the slave owners. It was really, hard on, owners. <laughs> it was really hard on them, man. They had a, it was a bummer. Um, <laughs> and I read that, and I'm ashamed to say, I was just like, okay. And um, it really wasn't until I, I, got to, I got to BYU and we had the slavery section. We had a week or two on slavery, and I suddenly was like, this is not what I thought it was. Um, so that shifted. And then a couple weeks later, I turned up to class, and we were talking about this thing called the civil rights, which I, civil rights movement, which I had never heard of. And the professor puts a, puts a picture up, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's Rosa Parks getting her fingerprint taken, that famous image. And he says to us all that she was arrested for taking a seat on a bus. And I knew nothing about what he was talking about. So I just assumed that he meant that she was uh, being arrested for stealing the seat. It's like, like a really unfortunate misunderstanding. It's just an unfortunate misunderstanding from take a seat versus to take the seat, you know? Like, <laughs> um, so. It just never would have occurred to me that in the, in the recent history of my country, you know, in the living memory of my mother, who to me seemed young, uh, that, there, that an American could be arrested for sitting down on a bus. Like, I thought my interpretation just made a lot more sense, <laughs> actually. Well, let me ask you one more thing. I think all of your devoted readers here uh, want to know how your life has changed because of this immense success over the past year. It's probably been a little bit of an out-of-body experience. Oh, you want me to say something about that? Yeah. <laughs> it's been a little bit of an out-of-body experience. I was hoping you tell me. Yeah, I was hoping you just explained to me what no, it was. No, no, you've, you've, you've explained um, to me before how weird it is. But. It's super weird. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that I did a year-long book tour, which uh, is, I would never do that again, um, ever. <laughs> 
It's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a promise you might not want to make. It's a promise. Way. It is a promise. You could sign that in blood. What's the worst like, part of the book tour? Um, right now? <laughs> this interview. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think I experienced for a while just a loss of control. We'd made commitments, and I didn't feel like I could go back on them, but I was just emotionally not in a place where I could do them either. And I felt caught. And I, there were, we canceled some events, and I actually got some nasty mail from people who were upset that I'd canceled it, and then I felt really guilty. And um, so I think it was a kind of loss of control or feeling like I was owned by other people and I had to do things because I'd said I would do them, but I didn't know like, that it was going to be really hard, and it was really hard. Going around talking about all the bad things that have happened to you for a year, it's like, it's it a little rough. Um, it's not ideal. But then I also got a lot out of it in the sense that um, I remembered how alone I'd felt when I was becoming estranged from my parents. And I remembered how badly I wanted to see someone talking about it and just tell me what their experience was. Because I felt like I was the only person that had ever happened to. And so I was also getting something from the events where I would, uh, it meant something to me to be able to be that person. But it was just really, really draining. And so I, I finally just stopped traveling pretty much or really, really cut back on it. And I've been uh, taking a gap year <laughs> uh, for the last maybe, I don't know, six months or something. And, uh, and I kind of live in a slightly hermitish way in as much as you can on the Upper West Side. And, um, and, it's, and it's really lovely. And it's kind of a nice thing because I go to events and I can engage with it. But uh, most of the time... I would say I forget that I have written this book. It's just not a big part of my life until I actually go somewhere where people want to talk to me about it. And then, um, but you know, I, I pretty much hang out with all my friends, and they're bored of it, so <laughs> they're over it. Uh, and so, you know. Yeah. Uh, why don't I? Why don't we take some questions? Uh, just raise your hand, and oh, there's someone right here who's very enthusiastic. So let's go right here. In your book, you mention a lot about like the the lady in the mountains. Um, for the cover, is that what like the pencil represents, like right here? Is that what it's supposed to be? I don't know. I, I saw that. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I haven't thought of it that way, but I like that it could be thought of that way. I like that image a lot because I have a quote at the beginning of the book from Dewey where he says that education is, is not meant to fit you for a future life. It's, it's meant to be life itself. So the experience and the process and the goal of education are all supposed to be the same thing. And I, I liked this image because the pencil is obviously a, a trope of education, but then I liked the idea that the pencil was also the mountain. And I think the, the image on it is supposed to be me, uh, but I like the idea of it being the, the Indian princess more. So I like your interpretation more than mine. <laughs> um, but for Good me, I, I liked that it was a dual image and that it was, it was kind of saying, um, yeah, the story of my life and the story of my education is the same thing. And I think it is for all of us. And sometimes when we talk about education, because we have a crisis of, of jobs and technology and globalization and there's all this pressure on the education system to essentially be job training and fit, fit people to do jobs, which is, you know, a good goal too. But I think sometimes we forget that education is also meant to be about life and the way that you live your life. And it's meant to fit people to live a richer, fuller life. That's really what it ought to do. And, and making people employable is a wonderful side effect of that. Hi, thank you for this awesome conversation. I loved your book and your story. 
I feel like many people grow up feeling different for a variety of different reasons, and your story obviously was um, a more unusual and extreme version of that, of the experience of sort of integrating into mainstream society, whatever that means, once you were in school. And um, anyway, I just hoped you might talk a little bit about that sort of integration of identity, if that is a process, if it's happening. I also am, am interested in its impact on your mental health, which you wrote about so beautifully in the book, and just any comments you have about that journey as well. Yeah. Um, I'm interviewing Lori Gottlieb, I think later this afternoon, and uh, not tomorrow. Um, it's this afternoon. And she has a wonderful line in her book where she talks about the need that we all have to let go of certain narratives about ourselves so that we can live our lives and not live the stories that we're telling ourselves about our lives. And um, I, think, I think for me that's a lot of the book is about that. It's trying to find that balance between who you are because you're given an identity when you're born and other people tell you who you are and that's just childhood. Uh, and then at a certain point, I think part of what it means to grow up is trying to define yourself both in um, connection with that and also in distinction to that. And for some people, that's a rough journey, maybe because people in their lives won't allow them to change or, uh, or, or for various reasons. So I, I, think, I do think you're right. I think a lot of people struggle with that in, in a whole bunch of different ways. And I think in some ways, the facts of my upbringing are extreme, but I, I know a lot of people who had difficult family situations, and I don't necessarily feel like, well, you're, you're, a, you're a five on the scale, and I'm a, like, I, I don't think it works like that. I think it can be incredibly intense no matter what your situation is. So one of the things I wanted, to, tried to write about in the book at least is, not that you should discount the narratives other people give you entirely, but that you don't necessarily have to take them at face value, and you don't have to believe what someone else says about you, even if it's someone that you love. Hi, I was fascinated by your changing and evolving and becoming the woman you are now from the girl that you grew up as in Idaho. But I wonder what values and lessons and ideas you grew up with do you retain today? Um, that's a good question. Um, my parents, I think, had a, a, they were devoted to hard work. That's for sure. Um, I, I think they definitely taught us how to work, and I'm grateful for that. I think that the idea of education, which is that you're responsible for your own education, my dad had this thing that he said a lot, which is that you can teach yourself anything better than someone else can teach it to you, which I, I do believe. I, I do think something that you want to learn, you're going to learn so much better than something someone else tells you that you have to learn. And just that fundamental belief that I can teach myself things. I'm really glad that I grew up with that. Other values, um, I don't know. I mean, I grew up, I grew up Mormon. There's a lot of things I think I've taken from Mormonism that really inform me. I think I'm no longer religious. I don't, I don't have that specific set of beliefs. But I think we're moving into a strange age. I think where science and technology are trying to tell us like what a person is. But I think that. We have an intuitive sense, at least I hope we do, that we don't really have an answer to that question yet. Like, we want to talk about people like they're essentially responses to stimuli, but I think a lot of us have a, a, a sense that that's not the whole story, and that there's something else there. And my worry is, um, 
if, as, we're, as we're rejecting this language of religion, one of the great things that religion did give us is that language of a soul and a belief that everybody has divine value because they're children of God. And I, I haven't seen a scientific argument that, to me, replaces that. But I see a tendency to devalue human beings, I think, a little bit. I think I especially see it in the political climate, right? What, what reason do we have to value someone that we think is prejudiced in some unforgivable way? Do we have a reason to value them? And I find that, for me, that religious upbringing just comes back to me. And I have to believe in it, because I used to be that person. I used to be that person who had no value because I thought the wrong things. The sexist things, the racist things, the homophobic things, I thought all of them. And it was only because people decided that I had value despite the ideas I had that they got to me and changed my mind. So I think, I think that fundamental belief in, uh, in human value, that even if it's not apparent, is something I really hope I keep. Do you ever still feel Mormon? You cut off my applause. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, I thought it wasn't going to be about you anymore. But whatever, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, do I, 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 was, I feel Mormon. I don't feel Mormon when I talk to other Mormons because they are Mormon and they're doing Mormon things and thinking Mormon things. And I'm aware that I don't do that anymore. Um, and I know that in their eyes, I'm super not. So uh, I just am like, yeah, I know, I'm not. But uh, when I talk to people who aren't, like when I'm talking to you, yeah, I feel super Mormon. <laughs> That's because I'm super Jew, you know? I mean, it's, uh, it's, all, it's all working. It's working. It's all working out it's here. It's working. Uh, there was a question over here, and then I just want to make sure, is there somebody over I Just keep an eye on that side. <laughs> I think that you absolutely define Martin Buber's famous expression about you're unique in all the... We're each unique in all the world, and you certainly are. And I enjoyed your book, but I'm not going to waste time on that. What I want to ask you <laughs> is... What I'd like to ask you is, has your unique experience in any way affected other rural young women where you lived or throughout the country? Um, have you inspired people to be able to do what you did, or do you think it's gone on deaf ears, so to speak? I hope so. I mean, I don't know. I wanted to write the book. I wrote it. I wanted it to be easy to read. You know, I, everyone, you want to write in a literary way because everyone wants to be taken seriously as a writer. But whenever I had to make a choice between a complicated literary sentence and a simple, less literary sentence, I always went with the other one because I wanted it to be something people could understand. And I said this to my publisher the whole way through. I don't want anything about this book to, to make it so that a 15-year-old girl in Idaho couldn't get through it, whether that's being super long or having complicated writing. We're, just, we're not going to do anything that would make it. So I hope so. I don't have any data for that. But I hope that um, kind of what you were saying about what we think education is, this more elite or ideological process, I wanted to show not just rural kids, but all kinds of kids. Education isn't any one thing. It's You can do with these ideas anything that you want to do with them. I went to Cambridge, and my first exposure to feminism was a form of feminism that just terrified me, and I didn't get it at all, and I ran away and read John Stuart Mill, and that was the kind of feminism that I, I liked. And I liked it because it was just a total absence of anything. He just said, we have no idea what women are. It's a complete mystery. And, like, uh, and I read that and thought, perfect. Like, this is a feminism for me. Like, we don't know what women are. If anyone tries to tell you that they know what you are, they don't. 
and that's feminism for me. And um, so I think I want to try to book about education that said it's, it's not ideological. It's not about a particular class or for a particular race or a particular group of people. It can be anything. And what you do with these ideas is entirely up to you. It is your education. It's not anybody else's. So I hope so. And I hoped that they would find a story that represents them, that they recognize themselves in. I don't think that the rural US is represented often enough in media, so I hope so, but I, I don't know. Your book is very powerful, and I think it should become an American institution for 15-year-old boys and girls to read it, um, and I wonder how you view that for your future. Uh, it's, I don't, it's strange to be told that you should be an institution. Um, <laughs> I don't know, you know, the book is its own thing now. I don't... Uh, there was a time that it was mine, and now it doesn't feel particularly like it's mine anymore. And like I said, people come up to me and have totally different interpretations of it and completely different ideas about what they think it means. And I knew that that might happen when I wrote it, and that was kind of the goal. Uh, so I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, I don't know how okay I am with being chained to it for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, but I'm okay with it going off and doing its own thing. Yeah, that's fine. It can just go have its own little life. I'll watch. Um, I'm wondering if music is still a big part of your life and if you would be willing to sing a little something for us. <laughs> um, it is, yeah, but mostly just for fun. I just sing for fun. And I can sing something, but I'll, uh, let's do one more question because it's very awkward to sing and then be like, next. Uh, big burst into song, and then so we'll do it at the very end if you really. There's a, there's a question want over it. there. Wow, that's very brave of you, by the way. Yeah. Well, singing I am com more comfortable with than speaking, actually. <laughs> so we'll do one more question here, and then we're going to get a performance. Well, when I read your book, one of the things that really got to me was how physically active you were. I mean, scrappy metal and climbing up on those big trucks and everything as a young girl, this was really hard physical work. And I wondered now that you've become more of an academic, what do you do to keep fit? <laughs> uh, quick answer to that would be, I had a rude awakening when I went to college because I was consuming like six, 7,000 calories a day. Uh, and that was fine. And then it wasn't. And one day I walked in and I was eating an entire bag of Doritos and my uh, roommate said to me, do you know how many calories in that? And I looked at it, and it was a lot. And I said, that's fine. You're allowed like 6,000 a day, right? <laughs> and she said, no, super not. And so um, I gained like 30 pounds uh, really quickly and then uh, realized that if you're not roofing all day, you can't eat like 12 Snickers bars. Like it's just, <laughs> it's just a bummer. Uh, so no, I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a gymmer. I, I go to the gym and I, I bribe myself to do it. I'm a big fan of the Pavlovian method where I love this American life and I'm only allowed to listen to it at the gym. Like I'm just only allowed it. So I just associate the gym with like the dulcet tones of Ira Glass. And to me, the two are completely inseparable. And if a new episode comes out and I have a friend who produces for them, she'll text me and say, there's this great episode. And I read it and think, I can't wait. I got to go to the gym. Um, so that's how I do it. Uh, it's bribery. 
Okay, we have a minute. Yeah, we're running out of questions. Time. We're out of questions. All right. Do you want? Should I sing now? I or think you, you should sing more? now. I'll verse me song. Okay. I'm gonna sing a Mormon hymn because with me that's what you get. Um, I think it's weird to sing pop songs a cappella. I don't know any anyway. <laughs> okay. I won't no, look. I can't I'm not look looking. At you. I'm not looking at you. I'm looking over here. Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds Thy hands have made, I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Thank you. Tara Westover. Thank you, Tara. Tara Westover is a memoirist, essayist, and historian. She wrote the book Educated, which was named one of the New York Times' 10 best books of 2018. Jeffrey Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Previously, he was a Middle East and Washington correspondent for The New Yorker. Their conversation was held in June of this year at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeling Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.